Lance Armstrong used to be my hero. When I was a teenager, I was big into cycling. I was on my bike every day. I regularly entered long-distance events. And often when I was on my bike, zipping through the country lanes, I was imagining that I was Lance. Why? Simply because he was the best. I'd watched him win the toughest race in the world, the Tour de France, not just once or twice, but seven times. He'd broken every record imaginable. But what set Lance apart most in my mind was the fact that he'd done all of this since recovering from cancer. Cancer that started in his testicles and spread to his lungs and his brain, nearly killing him. For me, Lance spoke of never giving up, that anything was possible. Adversity really could be overcome if you fought hard enough. But then news broke that Lance was a cheat. In fact, he was a liar, a bully and a misogynist to go with it. Lance took performance-hancing drugs and blood-doped and was prepared to throw anybody under the bus if they dared to let on. It took many years for those rumours to be proved true. And the entirety of that time, I and many of his other fans defended him. I just could not accept that my hero would behave like that. Surely these rumours were made up by jealous competitors who could not get near him any other way. Of course, I was naive in the extreme. In the end, Lance himself admitted what he had done. He had all his titles stripped away from him and was forced to step down from his cancer charity, Livestrong. And now I view Lance from the complete opposite perspective. He is so tainted in my eyes that I can barely see what were his most extraordinary achievements coming back from his deathbed to be a brilliant bike rider, raising hundreds of millions of dollars for cancer research. Lance still did great things, but I really struggle to give him any credit for them. You may never have heard of Lance Armstrong, but I wonder if you went through a similar set of reactions when the whole statue debate raised its head in the UK last year. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, many of the UK's most important national figures were having their legacies re-examined. Lord Baden-Powell, the man who invented the scouting movement that has given pleasure to millions, including myself, was shown up at times to be homophobic, racist, and a fascist sympathiser. Edward Colston, the philanthropist, who gave so much investment to improve the lives of the poor in Bristol, turned out to have made his fortune in the slave trade. And perhaps most controversial of all, Winston Churchill, the man voted greatest ever Britain in one survey for his leadership during World War II, was questioned on his treatment of Indians during the Bengal famine and his use of poison gas against Afghans and Kurds. For many people in our nation, these disturbing revelations and the vandalism of the statues that came with them were really difficult to deal with. 
I remember sitting in one of our church Bible studies on Zoom during the pandemic when this topic came up and suddenly things got really heated. Now, I'm not going to get any further into the statue debate, but I hope I've said enough to make a point. When there is someone who we really look up to, someone who has done great things, it's really hard when we hear that they, like the rest of us, have feet of clay. And when we find ourselves in that uncomfortable position, we tend to swing to one of two extremes. Either we assume that all of the great things that they have done were not actually that great. Or we assume that all the bad things that are said about them cannot really be true. And of course, usually both of those extremes are false. All of our heroes in life are human beings. And as such, they are capable of great things. But at the same time, they're also capable of great mistakes. The two always come together. And that is why really we should idolise no one other than God. In our reading today, we're going to begin to start discovering this truth about Solomon. Solomon, as we shall find out over the next three chapters, also had feet of clay. I'm sure by the end of this sermon, some of us will be doing our level best to defend Solomon. And others will be trying to write him off. But what I want to try and encourage us to do is not to swing to either of those two extremes, but instead learn a lesson about our humanity and how to live a life that is faithful to God, even in our fallen world. In many ways, chapter 8 of 1 Kings, which we read together last week, was King Solomon at his very best. In that chapter, Solomon had just completed the temple and he launched into a long prayer to dedicate it to the Lord. And it was a brilliant and a beautiful prayer. In it, Solomon was reverent and visionary. He was compassionate to those in need. In his prayer, Solomon demonstrated that he knew who he was and his role in history. He was a son of David and a servant of the Lord. In his prayer, Solomon showed that he really understood Israel's calling to be a blessing to the nations. His words were full of wisdom and faith and no little inspiration. And we all went away from church last week encouraged. We learned a lot about prayer and we'd seen King Solomon at his greatest. But chapter 9 starts to raise some questions, doesn't it? Some serious questions. In fact, even its opening sentence makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Verse 1. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do, Now, let me stop us there. Listen to how else the Hebrew of that verse can be translated. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved every fancy that he desired to fulfill. 
every fancy, every whim? Could it be every proud ambition? Just from the wording of verse 1 itself, we're left with an awkward question. In completing the temple, Solomon had achieved all he desired to achieve. But had God finished with all he desired from King Solomon? Did Solomon assume that now the temple was finished, he could just check out and go his own way? We're about to find out. But we now know the great question of this chapter. Solomon had done a truly great thing in building the temple. But just where was his relationship with God now that he was world famous? In the days after Solomon completed his greatest achievement came the moments of greatest danger. But here's the interesting thing. God knew that was the case. So as soon as Solomon has completed this long prayer to the Lord, God turns up and he gives Solomon an explicit warning. And this is the personal presence of God that arrives on the scene, just as it had been when God turned up at the beginning of Solomon's reign and gave him wisdom in chapter 3. And the reason that God turns up in this incredible way is because he knows that Solomon now stands at a crossroads. And the consequences of his ongoing decisions are huge. So God begins. The Lord said to Solomon, I have heard the prayer and the plea that you've made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. In other words, God acknowledges the temple that Solomon has made and he promises to dwell there. He's heard Solomon's great prayer and he answers it. God is delighted by what Solomon has achieved so far. It has so much potential for good. God is pleased. And God then goes on to reaffirm Solomon as David's son. He reiterates the promise that he made to David's family that they would always have a successor on the throne of Israel. But, and here is where the crux of this whole chapter lies. That promise to Solomon came with a condition. Listen again, verse 4. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully, with integrity of heart and uprightness as your David, your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David, your father. If. That is a big if. Solomon will remain a great king. His children will have a great dynasty. If. If they continue to walk before God faithfully. If they continue to have integrity in their heart. If they live an upright life. If they make every effort to follow God's word and his law. If. And if they don't do this, well, the consequences are disastrous. Listen again. 
But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Let's be in no doubt. Solomon stands at a crossroads, a real decision point. He has done something amazing. There are no arguments about that. But now that he has finished the temple, he can either go on walking step by step with the Lord, or he can down tools, check out, and go his own way. If he keeps following God, he'll know more and more of God's blessing. If he goes his own way, even the greatest achievement of his life, the temple, will come to mean nothing. God says he will bring it down to a heap of rubble and Israel will become the laughing stock of the world. Can you see, God isn't messing around here. He knows how much danger Solomon is in with all his fancies. And he lays out this warning in the strongest possible terms. Solomon may have completed the temple, but he hasn't completed his life. There is much more to come, and much more that God wants to achieve. Solomon must keep in line with God's word and God's will. This is a warning of love. And I hope we understand the relevance of this warning that God gives Solomon to our lives today. Many of us in this room have been following God for years, decades even. And over that time, God has done great things in our lives and in this place. Even this last year, we've seen great things. We've renovated the building. We've seen young people baptized. We've seen 183 shoeboxes, a record. But we can never switch off or check out from God. As God's people, we can never rest on past successes. For there is always more to do. There are always going to be temptations coming our way that we need to fight off. And the honest truth is that our walk with God is never over until the day we see him face to face. And every day of that journey will require us to walk in obedience. As God's people, we don't stick solely with God until we've achieved the things that we'd quite like to achieve. We follow God because he's holy and he's mighty and he deserves everything we've got. We follow God because he made us and he knows what's best for us. As the Lord points out with great abruptness in both verse 6 and verse 9, if we take our eyes off him, very quickly, we fill our vision with idols and other gods. And that is a sure and certain road to ruin. So God loves Solomon so much, he makes this effort to turn up in person and warn him at this perilous moment. He lays everything out straight in the earnest desire that Solomon would heed his words and make the right decisions. 
But now we must ask, did Solomon heed the warning? Well, to answer that question, the narrator of 1 Kings presents us with a record of all that Solomon did next and invites us to make up our own minds. Let's now then have a look at some of the details the narrator deliberately includes at this point in the story. First of all, verse 11, Solomon sells off 20 towns and hands them to the king of Tyre. This is land that Joshua had fought to conquer, land that the Lord had promised to give to his people. Well, here Solomon gives it away. Why? Well, the text is clear, verse 11. Solomon did this so he could get all the cedar and juniper and gold that he wanted. Do you remember God's warning? Take your eyes off me, Solomon, and you'll soon fill them with other gods. Well, three times in these verses, Solomon's quest for gold is mentioned. Have a look. Verse 11, verse 14, verse 28. Did gold become one of those idols that held so much danger for Solomon? The text never says explicitly. But I wonder how the Israelite inhabitants of those 20 towns felt when they found themselves under the reign of a foreign king because Solomon wanted gold. What do you think? The next thing that we see Solomon doing is a little bit of deception, a little bit of false representation. The king of Tyre, who's just helped him so much to build the temple, given him all the resources, well, in verse 12, it tells us that Solomon gave him some rather shoddy recompense. We get the impression that he slightly shortchanged his friend so he could keep the best of the land for himself. Again, we're not told anymore. The question is raised. Is that the right thing to do? And then from verse 15 onwards, we read about how Solomon conscripted men into labor and particularly non-israelites into slave labor to build things for him you just cannot read the words slave labor in the bible without thinking of egypt and the exodus remember the great lengths that god went to in order to bust his people out of the degrading treatment of pharaoh well this sounds dangerously close to the same thing, doesn't it? And as if to remind us of that Egypt experience, did you notice how even Pharaoh popped up in these verses? Verse 16, it tells us that he conquered Giza and gave it to his daughter, who happened to be Solomon's wife. A wedding gift. And again, we have to ask a question. Is this alliance? A good idea? Could it be that Solomon is on a path to become more like his mate, the king of Egypt, rather than him being God's king? I don't know. The text doesn't say. But it raises the question. 
I said in the introduction that when someone we really admire gets a little shown up, we often want to jump in and, and make excuses for them. We pretend that some of the bad things cannot be true. And we say things like, well, it was good that Solomon brought in wealth. That would have helped the poor in the land. It's good that he made political alliances. That was a wise thing to do. It would have brought peace to the land. This wasn't really slave labor. He was giving foreigners work. I don't know. What do you think? But as I was preparing this sermon, and I was really trying to work out what was going on in this passage, I was struggling to make head or tail of it until I started to compare this passage to the instructions that God gave his king in Deuteronomy 17. If you have a Bible in front of you, turn to Deuteronomy 17. And starting at verse 14, we read these words. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. He must follow carefully all the words of this law and not consider himself better than any other fellow Israelite. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom, Israel. Did you see the references? Egypt, gold. That comparison with the law is pretty challenging, isn't it? As I said at the start, it's not my desire to destroy Solomon's reputation. I'm not trying to topple a statue of a biblical hero. And in the end of this chapter, verse 25, Solomon is still doing some very good things. He's worshipping God in the temple. I'm just trying to get us to be honest about his life. Solomon unquestionably did great things. But he also did some very questionable things. So what we see here then is the reality of human nature. It's laid bare before our eyes. And the importance of staying committed to God is stressed in the extreme. Because otherwise we all will turn to other gods and idols, money and power. And things go wrong and people get hurt. This passage forces us to ask difficult questions about Solomon. But it also invites us to ask questions about ourselves. And it's with these that I would like us to finish. In light of one kings, we need to ask ourselves, are we as keen to serve God and do his will today as we have ever been? Or have we checked out in some way? When our story comes to be told, Will we have responded to the warnings in God's word and taken up the challenge to stay true to him? Or will we have fallen for the temptations around us? What is our relationship with money and fame 
Are we any different to the world around us? And how do we treat other people? There is a lot for us to think about. We might not have had God turn up personally and give us a warning like he did with Solomon, but there are some direct texts in the Bible that urge us to be on our guard. Hebrews 2.1 says, We must pay careful attention so that we do not drift away. Hebrews 3.12 See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Solomon had a decision to make. Would he heed the warning or not? And so too do we. But despite the severity of the subject matter, I have to finish by speaking some good news. I think Solomon did end up making a bit of a mess of things. After finishing the temple, I think he did check out a little bit. He took his eyes off God. But it was Solomon himself who told us what to do when we find ourselves in the same situation. What was it that he urged in his great prayer last week? He said, if we sin against God and there's no one who does not sin, then we are turned towards God. Repent. Ask for his forgiveness. And the Lord who is merciful will hear those prayers and forgive. As Christians, we know that God was rejected again after the life of Solomon. The Lord Jesus was turned away from because people wanted their own desires and fancies. But God wasn't defeated by sin. Forgiveness came through the cross and the resurrection. And it's promised to us today. So if we recognise the danger of Solomon, if we recognise that once we were very close to God, but now we've drifted away, let us turn back to Christ. Let us turn to his cross. Let's make a true confession. And we can be assured that God will forgive and allow us to start again. Let's heed the warning and keep following God as closely as we can.